this morning, I am uh, filled with great expectation and excitement uh, as I've studied this passage. Um, just thrilled to see what the Lord might do through his, this, his word this morning. Uh, and so this morning, uh, we're continuing our series, The Acts of the Risen Christ. Uh, and as we've run through uh, the first several chapters of Acts, again and again, we've seen a picture of the gospel spreading to non-Christians through the Christ-like love of the early church, through the bold preaching of the apostles, uh, but also through the simple gossiping of the gospel as ordinary Christians go about their daily lives and telling people around them about Jesus. And so we've seen in this that evangelism is vital for the church. The church will not continue to go on unless we tell others about Jesus. Evangelism is necessary for the ongoing growth of Christians. It's part of the way that Christians grow in faith as they come to a deeper awareness of what the gospel means for them. And as, at least as we've been reading Acts, it seems like evangelism is just a very natural part of the church's life. And yet, despite knowing all of this, I would probably guess for most of us, evangelism still feels very difficult and very unnatural. Uh, as Max Stiles writes in his book, Evangelism, it's not so much that evangelism has been tried and found wanting so much as it is that evangelism has been found difficult and left untried. And so this morning, the question I want to pose is why is it so difficult for us to do something that is so necessary and that, at least in the pages of Scripture, seems so natural? I think there's probably as many reasons as there are people in this room, but I'll try to offer what I think are some of the more common ones uh, that face many of us. Uh, first, of course, is the fear of the cost of evangelism. Many of us uh, find evangelism difficult and unnatural because of the cost. We fear we might be rejected. We fear we might look stupid. We fear we might be lumped into those weird categories of those evangelists who do weird things. And here, we need the fear of God and the love of God to be more important to our heart than the fear of man. But another reason we find evangelism difficult and unnatural, I think, is because we mistake the results of evangelism for evangelism. In other words, we think that if we're going to be an effective evangelist, we need to actually turn a non-Christian into a Christian. We've got to get them to cross the line. But again, that mistakes the results of evangelism with evangelism. And this leads to all sorts of other fears. We begin to fear, I might say something that would actually push them farther away from Jesus rather than closer to him. We begin to fear that we might not know enough to convince them to become Christians, and on and on we might go. And so for a moment, I want to try to clear away some of the rubble of that confusion with one of the more helpful definitions of evangelism I've come across. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. In other words, successful evangelism is explaining the good news of what Jesus has done by his life, death, and resurrection with the aim of persuading the specific person we're speaking with. But successful evangelism does not include actually convincing them. It does not include actually persuading them. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so that brings us to one final reason evangelism, I think, can be so difficult for us today. 
I think it's that we try to do evangelism on our own. And I actually think uh, of this in two different senses. First, when we think of evangelism, I think most of us probably either think of something like a mass crusade, someone like me standing up here, preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith, or we think of personal evangelism. I, on my own, go talk with someone about Jesus. But one of the ongoing pictures of evangelism we find in the New Testament is it being a communal affair. Yes, there's bold preaching, and yes, there's this one-on-one dimension, but there's also this picture of non-believers being drawn in through hospitality, of people going out and Pairs two by two to tell others about Jesus. Of non-believers simply experiencing the community of the early church and finding they want to come to Jesus. And so one solution to our difficulty in evangelism is to stop trying to do it on our own. Instead, to do it with believing friends who will help pull us along. We might do this by intentionally mixing social gatherings with non-believing friends and believing friends. We might do this as we're talking with someone who doesn't know Jesus and has questions we're not prepared to answer. Say, you know, I think I've got a friend who's better prepared to answer your questions. Can we meet with them? Or you might even be so bold as to invite them to church where we'd all be ready to welcome them and enter into their journey with wherever they are towards Christ. And think of just the benefits of communal evangelism. We hold one another accountable. We strengthen our mutual resolve. Uh, We learn from one another. We rejoice together in successes and cry and failures. And we bond through shared experiences that might be intense at times. So one antidote is to the difficulty of evangelism is to start doing it with others. Now, ironically, the burden of our passage is personal evangelism. And it's a picture of someone doing it entirely on their own. There's no one else to do it with them. Yet, our passage does relate to one other way we try to do evangelism on our own. Often when we think of evangelism, we think of something we have to manufacture apart from the work of God. Rather than seeing the fact that God is always at work around us and getting in step with his work, we think, I've got to create this opportunity. I've got to find the moment. And in so doing, we feel all the pressure and we run away from it. And so as we continue our series, the Acts of the Risen Christ, and consider Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40 in particular, we'll see that this text is precisely dealing with this difficulty. This text is tailored to teach us to depend on the Holy Spirit's work through God's word and our evangelism. This text is tailored to teach us to depend upon the Holy Spirit's work through God's word and our evangelism. And what precisely Does this look like? Well, as we follow Philip's story, we'll see three characteristics of depending upon the Holy Spirit's work through God's word. We'll follow the Holy Spirit's leading, explain the good news about Jesus with the scriptures, and expect the Holy Spirit is going to work. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're thankful that in it, uh, you teach us not just how to come to you, but how to call and invite others to come to you. And Lord, today, as I am excited and expectant about what you might do through your word, I I beg that 
today, the words I have especially would be words from you, not words I've inserted. And that what is received by our church family would be what you've prepared. And so, Lord, I do ask that the sermon that's heard would be better than the one that's even delivered because of your work in our lives. And, Father, we do ask that you would use your word to deepen our sense of the glory, the majesty, and the love of Christ. And that would motivate us then to tell others about Jesus as well. Lord, please help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that you might use our time together in your word to mobilize us for mission for his glory in the world. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 8, verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can feel free to get up right now and grab a weekly word and prayer off the welcome table in the foyer. You can follow along the passage that way. Uh, and if you have a Bible but are not familiar with it, Acts is in uh, towards the end of the Bible, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but before the letters to the Romans and Corinthians. And once you find it, you'll be looking for a big, bold eight, followed by a small number, 26. And as we anticipate a message on depending on the Holy Spirit, uh, please take a moment uh, to invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in your life. Uh, ask him to speak to you what he's prepared for you in particular this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Awesome. Look with me. Verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Here we see first that we depend on the Holy Spirit's work through God's word and our evangelism by following the Holy Spirit's leading, by following the Holy Spirit's leading. In these verses, we see the clear direction of God through both an angel of the Lord speaking and through the Holy Spirit speaking to Philip. And perhaps more importantly, we see Philip following the leading of the Spirit by immediately obeying and following the instructions he had been given. Uh, Having finished his ministry in Samaria, an angel of the Lord directs Philip to rise and go south. And immediately the text tells us he rose and went. Philip doesn't know why he's going where he's going. He simply follows the Spirit's leading. But it immediately begins to be obvious. He's going to a desert place, which you would expect not many people to be around at this time. And yet when he goes there, he just so happens to come into contact with an Ethiopian eunuch who is in charge of all the treasure of the, king, of the queen of Ethiopia. And not just that, This Ethiopian eunuch was likely already a convert to Judaism, maybe even interested in Christianity, since he had actually gone to Jerusalem to worship and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, to understand the significance of this divine appointment, we need to understand what 
God's word says about someone like him. And his law, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, eunuchs were forbidden from worshiping with the people of God. They could not enter into the assembly is the specific language. So here we have a foreign man, an Ethiopian, who is being drawn to the God of Judaism to the point he would go from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem to want to worship God, even though he would never been allowed to go beyond the outer courts. He is a spiritually seeking man investigating a religion that would never allow him to worship with the people of God. And yet at the same time, Isaiah foresees a day where this reality would not be true. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5, the prophet Isaiah says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree, for thus says the Lord. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, according to the Old Testament law, this foreign eunuch was cut off from the people of God. But Isaiah foresaw a day when this foreigner would no longer be cut off. Instead, he would have an everlasting name that was better than the name given to sons and daughters. In other words, when the angel of the Lord sends Philip south, he's beginning to do a work to demonstrate yet again that the gospel is for everyone. Not just the Jews, not just the despised half-Jewish Samaritans, but also those who should have expected to be cut off from God and his people. In fact, in many ways, this whole section of Scripture and Acts from Acts chapter 6 through Acts chapter 12 is about the gospel being for everyone. Uh, um, Stephen is persecuted so that the church would be scattered so the gospel would go to everyone. Last week, we saw the gospel was for half-Jewish, despised Samaritans. This week, we see that the gospel is for people who had been cut off from God and his people. Next week, as we look at the conversion of Saul, one of the persecutors of the church, we see the gospel is for former enemies of God and his people. And as we go to Acts chapter 10 through 12, we begin to see the gospel is not just for Jews, not just for half-Jewish Samaritans, but it's also for non-Jewish Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. And yet, each of these passages also has a distinct message. In particular, the point of this passage is to show us the Holy Spirit's work through our evangelism. So here we see that after the angel of the Lord has sent Philip south, it's the Holy Spirit who tells Philip to go down to the chariot and join him. And this is, again, exactly what Philip does. He runs down to the chariot, hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah, and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? Now, we haven't yet seen the response of the Ethiopian eunuch, Yet, given all the Holy Spirit is doing, we can anticipate it's a favorable response. And many of us might wonder, why does God not just tell us to do things just like that today? Why can't I have an angel tell me, do this? Or the Holy Spirit audibly tell me, do that? And yet, as one commentator points out, we may not have angels appearing to us with explicit instructions for our life and ministry. But God has not left us without any instruction of his will for our life. God's will is made known through his word. As we study scripture and we seek first the kingdom of God, 
God will make clear how we can follow him faithfully. Additionally, God's wisdom and purpose for our life is also made known through the loving care of a local church. As we submit to the authority of elders and to a congregation, we'll find through them wisdom in instructing the path to greatest faithfulness. And so the way God continues to make known his will most often today is first through the scriptures. The scriptures give us the boundaries of his will. And so when we ask, what would God want me to do? The first thing we can say, does God explicitly command it or forbid it? And we know very clearly whether we're free to choose that thing or not choose that thing. And if we know that it's within the boundaries of God's will, but we don't know exactly which choice we make, God has given us the people of God to go to for wisdom. And as we talk with brothers and sisters in Christ about the various decisions we're facing, we'll begin to get a sense for what is the wise course to go? What is a faithful path? And after talking with brothers and sisters, we still have multiple options. There's still many ways we could seek wisdom and be faithful. Well, then the Holy Spirit leads through our desires. And so we are not left with no guide, but instead several guides. First, we go to his word and ask, God, can I do this? And if he says yes, we go to our brothers and sisters and say, which way do you think would be wise? And when the church has given us lots of different options, then we say, Holy Spirit, where are you leading? And when it comes to our evangelism, it's worth pointing out, as Pastor Tony Merida does, that we don't need to feel led to share the gospel in order to share the gospel. Jesus has given us the great commission to obey, which gives us all the license we need to go and tell other people about Jesus. Nevertheless, we should still pray for divine opportunities and remain open and sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. And when he speaks, we ought to act. And when we should realize that just as the Holy Spirit was clearly paving the way for Philip, this is what the Holy Spirit is actually doing around us all the time. He's already working. Notably, the Holy Spirit has sent Philip to the middle of nowhere to approach an Ethiopian eunuch because he was already at work in that man's life. Listen, we don't need to manufacture opportunities to tell people about Jesus. What we need to do is be sensitive to the way the Spirit is already working in people's lives and boldly then take the opportunities he's already creating. So do you have a neighbor you've been meaning to visit? You have a new coworker you've intended to engage in conversation. Is there a family down the street you've been meaning to give a gift to meet their need? Is there someone in your school that continues to be on your heart and mind? If so, it could be that God is up to something. You, like Philip, might have a chariot awaiting you. And so the question is, will we listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit? And when we hear, will we follow? This is part of what it means for us to be a church devoted to multiplying disciples. We aim for every member to be intentionally investing in a few people at a time to multiply disciples, leaders, and ministry. In other words, all of us should be looking for ways the Holy Spirit is already at work in a few people's lives. And as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, we intentionally invest our time, our energy, and our relationship into them so that as we point them to Jesus, they might actually become disciples of Jesus. So I'd ask you, which 
non-believers do you sense the Holy Spirit is already at work in? Then follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and pray for them, serve them, pursue them, and look for every opportunity he's creating for you to tell them about Jesus. How do we depend on the Holy Spirit through God's word and our evangelism? First, by following the Holy Spirit's leading. Second, look with me in verse 31. In response to Philip's question, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And Philip opened up his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Here we see, we depend on the Holy Spirit's work through God's word and our evangelism by explaining the good news about Jesus, beginning with the scriptures. By explaining the good news about Jesus, beginning with the scriptures. So in response to Philip's question as to whether he can understand what he's reading, the Ethiopian eunuch replies, how can I unless someone guides me? And seeing Philip as someone who might be able to explain to him, he invites him up into the chariot and explain it. And briefly, I want you to notice, in addition to the Holy Spirit orchestrating all of this, the entire conversation we're about to see unfolds because Philip asked a question. And asking questions is one of the best ways we can actually stir up gospel conversations. One reason evangelism is so hard is because we feel pressure to say this thing then say that thing and try to make the conversation go there because we don't think to simply ask a meaningful question. And to the person who thinks they're a Christian, but the gospel doesn't seem to be making a difference, we can ask, what do you think it means to be a Christian? And to the person who's spiritual but not religious, we can ask them, why have you given up on organized religion? And to the person who's suffering, we can lovingly ask, what gives you hope in moments like this? To the person who is seeking, we can boldly ask, do you understand the gospel? And depending on the answer to any of these questions, Our conversation could go a number of different ways. It could move towards the gospel. It could be the groundwork for later getting to the gospel. It could provide opportunity to share how the gospel helps us to respond differently. And it could actually open the door to explain the gospel right then and there. All we have to do then is develop the skill of asking questions. Listen well, and then be prepared to speak when the opportunity arises. So in your evangelism... Consider asking questions. Well, following the eunuch's favorable response to Philip's question, they begin to look at a passage found in Isaiah 53. And the eunuch asks, About whom I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? The eunuch's second question here reveals that his lack of understanding is not a result of literary incompetency. What I mean is, he understands what this passage is saying. The issue 
is he doesn't understand its significance for his life because he doesn't know about whom Isaiah is talking. And this is a helpful reminder that the reason we need the Holy Spirit to provide what we call illumination in reading the scriptures is not because it's impossible to understand the basic level of what scripture means. A non-Christian can come to the Bible and understand the history of the Bible, can understand the basic meaning of the Bible, but what they can't understand apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, what none of us can understand apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, is the significance of the scripture's meaning for our lives. We need the Holy Spirit to help us see what the Bible means for us. And so in the case of the eunuch, the Holy Spirit brings him understanding by providing Philip to explain the scriptures to him. This is one way the Holy Spirit provides answers for us, provides illumination. It's by giving people and giving the church faithful teachers. So beginning with the scriptures, Philip explains the good news about Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what Philip said, but we do know he had an amazing passage to start with. The passage from Isaiah the eunuch was reading is this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Perhaps from this scripture, Philip began to explain that Jesus was the lamb led to the slaughter. Perhaps he said Jesus had committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he remained silent, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. But even as he trusted himself to him who judges justly, justice was denied him, and he went to the cross, bearing our sins on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so that by Jesus' wounds we might be healed. But perhaps Philip went on to then explain, because of Jesus' death on the cross, the prophecy of Isaiah 56 had been fulfilled, that those foreigners and eunuchs who had been far off and cut off from the people of God and God himself now could be brought near by the blood of Jesus if they would repent of their sin and trust in Christ. We don't know exactly what Philip said, but we do know this is the message he proclaimed. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the message that we want you to hear, understand, and believe. Not all of us, because of our sin, have been cut off from God, have been cut off from God's people. But because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, paid for our sin, paid the penalty we deserved on the cross, we now can draw near to God. We now can be incorporated into the people of God and be given a new family in Christ. If we would turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, the lamb who is led to the slaughter on our behalf. So if you don't yet understand this message, and as you try to read the scriptures, you don't understand them, they don't make sense. Please know there is no shame in that. But I will tell you, Every member of this church wants you to understand both the gospel and the scriptures. And all of us would be glad to explain the gospel to you and read the scriptures with you so that you might encounter Jesus in the pages of his word. And so I'd invite you, if this is something you would want, 
please just ask. Come talk with me. Talk with anyone after the service. We would be delighted to explain the gospel to you. And we rearrange our schedule in order to begin reading the scriptures with you. We would love to help you see who Jesus is and what he's done. But if you are a Christian, one of the things I want you to see here is that one of the most effective ways we might consider doing evangelism is actually by simply reading God's word with those who do not yet believe in Jesus. We don't know exactly what Philip said, but we know that he began with the scriptures to explain the good news of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection. And we know that all of God's word either points to our need for Jesus or points to our hope in Jesus. And so we can begin anywhere in the scriptures with someone who does not know him and find ways to point them to him. Philip began with Isaiah 53. And depending on who you're trying to explain the gospel to, you might want to begin there. You might want to begin somewhere else. You might begin with the gospel of Mark so that you can encounter who Jesus is and what he done. But wherever you start, the basic idea is this. Since all of God's word points to Jesus in one way or another, read the scriptures and simply explain how those scriptures highlight our need for a savior and point to Jesus as a sufficient savior and a kind king. But in order to do this personally, you do need to be prepared. You need to be prepared to both explain the gospel and to explain the gospel from scripture. So if you don't feel prepared to do this, let me encourage you to take one of these steps, pursue one of these resources. First, you could go out on the resource table and pick up what is the gospel or who is Jesus. These are just simple little booklets that explain the gospel and explain who Jesus is so that you might be able to tell someone else. You might also buy the Jesus Storybook Bible. I know that's a children's Bible. But it is such a helpful Bible that points out how every single, well, it doesn't go through every single story, but many stories in the Bible point us to Jesus. It will help you to develop that skill. Or if you want something even more intensive, uh, you might consider one of Nancy Guthrie's Bible studies called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. That takes uh, Genesis, the law, the prophets, the wisdom, and helps to make connections to every point of Scripture to Christ. And in some ways, This is actually what community Bible reading is practiced for. The design of CBR is to ask ourselves in every passage, how does this point to my need for a Savior? And how does this point me to the hope I have in Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection? And so by reading the scriptures in this way, by discussing it with others, we're actually getting used to, and we're practicing, talking about the scriptures, our life, and the gospel in such a way that it would become normal and natural to talk to other people about Jesus, even from the scriptures. So let me just encourage you for a moment. If you've been doing community Bible reading for a while, and you've started to focus on what you don't understand, or you've started to focus on what you need to do differently, how you need to live differently, but have stopped focusing on how the passage points you to the beauty, the glory, and the sufficiency of Jesus, then please go back to our journals, look at the introduction for a refresher, on how we can read scripture in a way that points us to our need for Jesus and the hope we have in him. And before we move on, I just want to briefly point out the beauty then of using God's word in evangelism. There's a promise associated with God's word that is not associated with our words. Isaiah 55:11 says, My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I sent, and it shall succeed in the thing 
for which I sent it. And the purpose of the word of God, according to the rest of Isaiah 55, is to produce transformation. It's to produce worshipers of God. Or as we look at Hebrews 4.12, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In a way that you and I could never do by our words, the Holy Spirit uses his word to actually discern a human's heart. And so by reading the scriptures with a non-believer and explaining to them the gospel from scripture itself, we are concretely relying on the Holy Spirit to do a work through his word as he has promised to do. Uh, This may not be as quick or efficient as simply summarizing the gospel and calling someone to respond, which you are welcome to do. That is a fine way to evangelize. But at the same time, this way of evangelizing slowly but steadily exposes someone's heart to God's word and allows God's word to do the work in their heart. So brother, sister, is there a non-believer in your life you sense the Holy Spirit is already working in? If so, consider asking them to read the scriptures with you. But before you do that, remember why we tell others the gospel. We don't tell others about Jesus in order to earn God's approval or love. We don't tell others about Jesus because we have to, just because it's our duty. Although Jesus has commanded, and that's one reason. The primary reason we tell other people about Jesus and what he has done for us is because we want other people to experience the same joy and delight that we've experienced through his life, death, and resurrection. As we realize that gospel teaches us That although we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, we can, in Christ, be more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. And this is all because of what Jesus has done for us. Though he was innocent, though he was perfect, though he was the lamb without blemish, brother, sister, he died for you. With all your warts, bruises, bumps, Jesus came to you. He died for you. He was the lamb who was led to the slaughter for you. Your sin, your shame, it wasn't hidden from his sight. He knows the worst things about you. And yet, his heart was not moved with, ah, stay away. It's filled with compassion. And he moved towards you all the way to the cross that you might be welcomed into the family of God. So it's because of the love Jesus has shown us on the cross that Jesus continues to show us through the Holy Spirit and will always show us that we tell others. And so now that you've been reminded once again of why we would tell someone about Jesus, let me ask again, brother, sister, is there a non-believer in your life that you sense the Holy Spirit is already working in? If so, consider asking them to read the scriptures with you. And what a joy it will be for you to be reminded of the love and grace Christ has for you as you tell them of the love and grace Christ has for them. So we depend on the Holy Spirit's work through God's word in our evangelism, first, by following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Second, by explaining the good news about Jesus, beginning with the scriptures. And finally, we'll see one more way in verse 36. Look with me. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, 
Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So here we see, we depend on the Holy Spirit's work through God's word and our evangelism by expecting the Holy Spirit to work. By expecting the Holy Spirit to work. Amazingly, in response to Philip's explanation of the good news, the Ethiopian eunuch responds with a desire to be baptized as a symbol of his newfound faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Again, we don't know exactly what Philip said, but at some point or another, he must have explained to the Ethiopian eunuch what baptism was, which points out to us baptism is not this thing that just kind of hangs out here that we might consider one day. No, this is an important part of even the gospel. He connects it here as something for us to immediately follow through. Perhaps Philip said the last thing Jesus said before he ascended to heaven was go make disciples and be baptized, baptize them. Or perhaps he recounted Peter's first sermon and said, in response to this good news, repent and be baptized. But whatever the case, the Ethiopian eunuch knew as a response to what Jesus has done, he ought to be baptized as a sign of his commitment to Jesus as king. And if you have trusted in Jesus but have never been baptized, this is a step you ought to consider out of obedience to Jesus because Jesus has commanded it. As a symbol of what has taken place with you, that you have been united with Christ's life, death, and resurrection. As we go down into the water and come out, it's a picture of dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. And finally, as a public profession of your commitment to him. And so if this is something you'd like to do, please come talk with me after the service. We'd love to talk more about the possibility of you getting baptized. And so in response then to the eunuch's question, Philip takes him down into the water and baptizes him. Now, if you've heard me talk about baptism before, you've heard me say, That baptism not only represents a believer's commitment to Christ, but it also represents the church's affirmation of that person's profession of faith. Because a person cannot baptize themselves. Someone has to agree to do it. So therefore, when the church baptizes someone, they're giving their stamp of approval to the person they're baptizing. They're saying, this person believes the same gospel we preach and is a faithful representative of the gospel and the way they're living. And so because of this, you've also heard me say things like we ought to be careful and cautious in baptizing someone when the genuineness of their faith or the the validity of their repentance is difficult to discern. And yet some people would point to this example of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch as an example that we don't need to be that careful or cautious. We ought to actually uh, baptize people immediately, spontaneously, as soon as they profess faith. But I don't think that's what this passage is teaching for two different reasons. Uh, First, as a text critical note, uh, which is simply uh, a way of talking about ways uh, manuscripts might be compared together. Uh, We know the early church was not practicing spontaneous baptism as early as the second century. They actually had a quite lengthy process for instructing those who had professed faith in Christ and what it meant to be a Christian before they baptized them. But it seems 
Some members of the early church, and scribes in particular, were then concerned as they read what seemed to be such an immediate baptism and inserted what in some of your Bibles will say is verse 37. Verse 37 says in response to Ethiopian eunuch's question, um, what prevents me from getting baptized? Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, the original manuscripts, the most early manuscripts, and the majority of manuscripts don't actually include that verse, which means it's not likely original. What it's indicating, though, is the early church was so uncomfortable with the idea that this would be a spontaneous baptism without any care or caution seeming to be shown, uh, that they would want to try to correct it. Now, Now, this may not seem like that significant of a correction, But if there's no caution being shown whatsoever in verse 36 or 38, simply asking, do you actually believe this, would be like a lot of caution. But I don't think this is actually what we need to do in order to see we need to apply some discernment in baptism. We've already got the case of the early church, who by our earliest accounts were being careful. But also, we just need to understand the passage. The issue is, is not whether or not someone has actually gotten saved. Only the Lord knows who is his. The issue is whether the church has the ability to discern whether a person's profession of faith is credible. And in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, there is very little that leaves us wondering whether he's made a credible profession of faith, even under such a short time. After all, it's the spirit who led Philip down south. It's the spirit who led the eunuch to be reading Isaiah 53. It's the Holy Spirit who blessed him with understanding through Philip. It's the Spirit who enables this favorable response. And it's the Spirit who whisks Philip away immediately after he's been baptized. Clearly, the Spirit is all over this situation. There is no reason we should be hesitant as to whether or not he has really come to faith in Christ. And so this means every profession of faith, the church will need to employ some level of discernment to determine whether or not someone has made a credible profession of faith. And in some cases, the church will have plenty of information and might want to baptize someone quickly, even spontaneously. But in other cases, the church ought to move more slowly and carefully because it's harder to discern whether that profession of faith is credible. Let me just give you two different examples of one that would be more fast and one that ought to be more slow. In the case of a Muslim teenager, who's immediately going to be disowned by their family if they profess faith in Christ, I doubt we need to show very much discernment if they publicly profess faith in Christ because the cost is too high. They're not going to do it willy-nilly. And so that decision alone is good evidence that they have trusted Christ and the Spirit's moving in them. On the other hand, it takes a great deal of discernment to know whether the profession of faith of a five-year-old belonging to believing parents is credible. On the one hand, if they've said they're a sinner and that they've trusted in Jesus, they're professing repentance and faith, what we expect of Christians. On the other hand, they have a lot of particularly strong, non-spiritual reasons to say they believe this. Like, this is what my parents believe. I want to fit in with all my friends at church. There's a lot of pressure that might make a child make this kind of profession, even if it's not genuine. And so we want to take the time to discern if their faith is indeed personal or merely an imitation of their parents, or to assess whether they understand the cost of discipleship, even while encouraging and celebrating their profession. And so we see, even in the case of the Ethiopian, with all of the Spirit's work, 
of the gospel is that move. And the church is affirming through Philip his faith. Now, as Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch come out then of the baptismal waters, the passage says the spirit whisks him away to Azotus, where he continues to preach the gospel throughout Caesarea while leaving the eunuch behind. But Philip's departure does not leave the Ethiopian eunuch any less joyful. He continues on his journey home rejoicing in his newfound relationship with God. In church history, through the early church father Irenaeus and the historian Eusebius would tell us, not only did the Spirit use this example to bring someone far off from God to God and his people, but he would actually use this eunuch as the first missionary back to Africa to tell the good news he had just come to believe. This is an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. But as amazing as it is, it should not be that surprising. (laughs) The way the story is told, we should have expected it because the signs of the Holy Spirit are all over it. And yet, if I'm being honest with you, very rarely do I have this sense of expectation that the Holy Spirit will work through his word. Whether that's through my preaching, through discipling, or through my evangelism, very rarely do I have that sense of expectation that the Holy Spirit will work in powerful ways. And so when he does, I'm gloriously surprised and encouraged. And yet, as I have begun to grow in expectation of what God might do, I'm beginning to see how expectation is connected to boldness. Because as we begin to expect the Holy Spirit to work, we begin to be more aware of the opportunities around us. And as we begin to expect the Holy Spirit to work, we begin to be bold because we think God will actually do something with our boldness. So very concretely, one way we can grow together in this sense of expectation that the Holy Spirit will work is simply to pray, to pray for opportunities, to pray for the people we want to evangelize, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in them, and to pray that God would give us boldness and clarity in declaring the gospel as we ought. Because as we begin to pray in faith, we begin to depend upon, trust, and even expect that the Holy Spirit will do a work. So we depend on the Holy Spirit's work through God's word in our evangelism. First, by following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Second, by explaining the good news about Jesus, beginning with the scriptures. And by finally, expecting the Holy Spirit to work. So now as we conclude our time together, I want to invite us as a church to respond together in a very clear and visible way. Based on what we saw of how the Holy Spirit works through God's word in our evangelism, I want to invite every single person to do three things today. First, I want to invite you to identify three non-believers you sense the Holy Spirit is working in. These can be family members, friends, coworkers, one of your neighbors, whoever. I want you to take a moment to consider, who do I see the Holy Spirit working in? And identify three non-believers by name. Second, once you've identified them, I want to ask you to do one of four actions with them and for them, uh, for these people you've named. And recognizing we're all on a continuum in our evangelism, hopefully the range of options gives you something you feel ready to do. One, you can pray for them. Ask that God would work in them and use you. Two, you can commit to ask them a spiritual question. Simply one of those questions I said earlier, something else that might move towards the gospel. Third, you can invite them to church. 
Ask them to come here where we will welcome them and they'll hear the gospel preached. Or fourth, you can invite them to read the scriptures. And so again, I want to encourage all of us to ask, who do we see the Holy Spirit working in? Name three people and then take one of these steps. Pray for them, ask them a spiritual question, invite them to church or invite them to read the scripture. And then the third thing I want to ask from every person is to then tell someone who you're praying for or who you've identified and what you want to do for them. That way we're not doing this alone. Uh, Although we're focused on personal evangelism today, we don't want any of us to be engaged in trying to tell other people about Jesus and feel like we're a lone ranger in it. We need the support and help of the church. So please, in particular, I would beg you, all of you, email the elders at northwoodcc.org so that we can pray for you as you seek to tell other people about Jesus. We would love to tell you more. And then tell your CBR group, tell your small group, not as a means to make you accountable, but to join in this work together. Perhaps you can begin praying together for the people you've named. Perhaps you can begin strategizing together how you might pursue this person relationally together so you're not doing it alone. And so again, identify three people you see the Spirit working in. Take one of those four actions. Then please both email the elders at northwoodcc.org so we can pray for you and tell others so that they can pray for you and join in this work. Northwood, just imagine what it would mean if every single one of us takes up this challenge. That would mean our small little church is actively praying for and seeking to evangelize well over 150 people. And if we actually expect that the Holy Spirit will do a work through our faithfulness, through our prayers, through our explanation of the good news from Scripture, then we could see an explosion of gospel growth as the Holy Spirit works in and through our prayers and evangelism. This is an amazing work God can actually do. So I want to invite us to step up to this challenge together. This is a part of what it means for us to be on mission together. The three things we've said we value are Jesus, community, and mission. Let's not do the mission part on our own, but let's pursue the people we love together as we bear witness to Christ. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I also want to invite you to take at least one of three steps as well after the service. Perhaps you can go to the resource table and pick up either the What is the Gospel or the Who is Jesus booklet, which will help you to better understand what the Gospel is and what Jesus has come to do. A second thing you might consider is literally after the service, ask someone, explain the Gospel to me. Can you answer my questions? Any of us would be delighted to do that. And finally, ask someone to read the Gospel of Mark with you. We'd be delighted to help you encounter Jesus and what he's done through the pages of Scripture. We'd rearrange our schedule to make that happen. But please, I'd encourage you to take one of those steps. So now as we conclude our time together, I'm going to give us time to respond to what God has been saying to us through his word. And in particular, I'm going to give us time for all of us to consider what steps they'll take to put themselves in a position for the Holy Spirit to work in and through God's word in their personal evangelism. One final note before we reflect. If you know of anyone who's not here today, I would actually ask you to encourage them to listen to this sermon so that all our church can be in on this together, so that no one is left trying to reach their friends, their family, their neighbors on their own. But instead, together, we can commit 
to helping one another pursue the lost and point them to Jesus. So here's some questions, again, to reflect that flow out of uh, these applications. What three non-believers do you sense the Holy Spirit is already working in? Do you want to pray for them? Ask them a spiritual question? Invite them to church or invite them to read the scriptures with you? Again, once you've identified that, please email the elders at northwoodcc.org. We want to pray for you. It would be our joy to do so. How does the love, joy, and peace you found in the gospel motivate your personal evangelism? And then finally, what step will you take to better understand the gospel or be prepared to explain the gospel? Let's take some time to consider how God is at work through his word. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the perfect lamb, lamb without blemish or spot that was led to the slaughter for us. We thank you that he did not reject this work, but joyfully went to the cross on our behalf. We thank you that in him and through his blood, we have been brought near to you. We can know you. We can experience peace, joy, and rest in you. And we ask that this work would penetrate our hearts deeply so that all of our life would be motivated and flow from the work that you've already done for us. And we ask in particular, as this passage urges us to Tell others the good news about what Jesus has done as you led Philip to. The gospel would be the foundation for why we would do that. And Lord, as we respond then to the gospel, we ask that you would help us to depend upon your spirit, to follow his leading, to trust your work through your word, and expect that you will actually do something. Lord, please help us as a whole church family, as we go from here to scatter on mission, together so that people might learn of what you've done and come to love you even as you have already loved them. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.